Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. This is U2Y, episode four. Moving on into 1983 now with the release of U2's third album, War. I see War as completing the triptych of Boy October and War, or perhaps more interestingly, I see War as a companion to Boy, and not just because of the fact that Peter Rowan is featured on the sleeves, but because together Boy and War somewhat frame October and in my mind and in hindsight kind of lift October up in many ways Um, so here we are we're going to dive into all things war war huh good god what is it good for so 1983 can you bring us back to 1983 and describe the initial feeling going into this third record? Did it have a feeling of business as usual, particularly coming from the trials and tribulations of October? Um, for me, it wasn't a big issue. There wasn't a sort of a big, oh, we got to get this right, boys, it's, or you know, this is our last chance. And none of that really was there. They were recording in uh, Wimble Lane, um, the old Wimble Lane. So I was down in Wimble Lane listening to uh early tracks or or them running through tracks or whatever to get a feel of what the the album might be um the discussion on the title was kind of i think for quite a while uh on the cards i don't remember there being a huge amount of uh talk of alternate titles so how quickly did the idea of this sleeve being a companion or counterpart to boy come to your mind this idea of revisiting the innocence from the first record, but almost corrupting it with war. Well, initially, uh, the intention wasn't to use Peter again. That that was kind of something that that came up later on, because um, you know I was conscious of the fact that he was used on that album. Maybe it was it was something that we should do in a different way or or press it in a different way. And um, the conversation then came to people like Donald McCullen, the renowned war photographer, and and is there an image? in there that that would kind of express that um and we looked at various images um not as easy to do then as it is now because you you, you didn't have the internet to fall back on and sort of go do research the, the photographers who did war photography or did documentary photography in those situations were quite well known so you, you know you had to look at those people and said is this a, a strong image that we could possibly use and um uh, i think i came around to the conclusion and i said that um 
I thought that if we simply, you know, selected a shot of Belfast or, or Bosnia or wherever it, a particular war or the First Second World War, any of these situations would be that the focus was too much on that one thing. So I had sort of shown or talked to the band about the fact that I had seen a documentary uh, a few years earlier on, on, on television about uh, the Warsaw Ghetto. And in this uh, footage, uh, and I'm pretty sure it was moving footage rather than stills, there was some shots of some children being rounded up in the ghetto. Um, and they were sort of had German soldiers all around them with rifles. And most of them had their hands behind their heads uh, as they were walked or put up against a wall and, and, and checked. And I felt that the... At one point, the camera closed in on 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 one particular boy, and uh, his eyes um, were kind of filled with um, trepidation and, and worry about what was going to happen. And I kind of said that to me expressed more of the outward looking rather than inward looking at war. What does this mean to a person who is on the other end of it, and the uh, the sort of innocence of that person trying to convey what what might happen to them? I actually believe that this image you're referring to is quite a well known image known as the Warsaw Ghetto Boy, um, one of the most famous photographs from the Holocaust. And you can clearly see the yeah, you can clearly see the the reference and the the feeling that you were you were searching for. Yeah. So that was accepted as a kind of possible idea to use. And then there was quite a bit of conversation then about who we would use for the for the cover and they said, Well, why not use Peter again? Because he's got a fantastic uh expression as we know his eyes are very very powerful so to consider the title of war of war it's a very heavy title it's a very evocative word i think edge had said that what he liked about it was that it didn't feel safe and perhaps it felt at odds with the kind of cozier or maybe softer image of u2 that people had become accustomed to and there's no softer image of u2 than the images on october so so suddenly that this you were at odds with that, which was interesting. I mean, within the image you have you have the continuation of the innocence from boy mixed with the the harshness of war and the kind of disparate aspects of war. And indeed, I think indeed the essence of war is is the tragic mixed with the barbaric to a degree. And I think that you've kind of captured that in the image. Yeah. So just going back to the idea of war as a continuation of boy, obviously you are pulling on these themes as a response to the album title itself. I'm wondering, was there a, a kind of epiphany mo- or a eureka moment where you you figured this could be a a sequel, a, a visual sequel to to boy? Well, I think once we had decided to, um, and in fact, from my memory, I think we, we we had decided to do a session with Peter, um, um, but that was it. Um, we uh, we we kind of thought, well, we'll look at this, see how it comes out, and how well it works, and if it doesn't work um, that well, maybe we'll consider some other option or whatever. So it was a fairly experimental idea at the time, and. Uh, again, I worked with uh, Ian Finley um, on the on the cover. So, with this idea of experimenting a, l- a little bit, would it be fair to say that you had what you might call the luxury of time on this one? Yeah, they were working. They were working minimal on 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 the recording. So there was this was going on during that time. So it was a bit of time to to think about it. But um, on the day of the, I think it was a Saturday uh, of the session with Peter, I met Bono and I think Googie in town, and. Um, I went down with them to a army surplus store that was in um, Talbot Street uh, near the railway bridge where the railway bridge crosses over. And um, we looked around at various things. So I, I kind of decided to uh, get a couple of props that might work. So I picked up the the helmet, which is in fact not a, a helmet. It's a helmet liner. A helmet was is made of metal. This is the kind of thing that you put inside your helmet. So I got that and I also picked up the gas mask and um, bought those uh, as, as possible props to use. Which which did make an appearance a little bit down the line for the Greatest Hits compilations. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't um, again, 
like everything that we that I was trying to do, we didn't make any decisions about what we would use until we actually saw what we'd got in the actual photography that Ian Finley had done. Mm-hmm. So I, I quite often, we you go into a album cover project with an idea in mind and something else happens during the session that turns out to be a lot better. So we never sort of said, this has to be this image. We simply said, well, let's shoot and see what we get out of the, of, of the imagery. So um, we kind of... Uh, I'm not sure whether Googie, I think Googie came out to Ian Finley's house, which was out um, past near Dunleary somewhere. Uh, so I think Googie left and left us with just with Peter and myself and Ian. And, and we um, uh, started to do the the work together. And Ian is was quite good at sort of working with, with, with kids and things like that. So um, keeping, keeping, keeping Peter's a little bit sort of, uh, nervous, but at the same time very keen to to do what he what we were trying to do. And I think one of the kind of strange things that happened um, post the, um, the the session was that um, Peter had a slight cut on his lip um, that wasn't as prominent in in real life as it became when the prints were done. Um, to the point that a couple of times, then when actually people asked me, did we actually uh, cut his lip or or, or in some way? caused that to happen to, to get that effect and yeah or with makeup or whatever but i suppose that could just be a good cover for the real story which is like you bashed him over the head with a stick beforehand or something right yeah yeah just yeah just get the war effect to, to get him frightened and do the whole thing yeah no that, that, that's we should we just stick with that story but no that's not 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 the true one but um we did quite a number of shots in uh, Ian's living room was set up and we and we had a white screen behind it. um i think actually I'm not sure whether it was because of Bono's um, use of a flag in in, in live performances at, at, at different times. We also had a flag made up, which was, I think, um, we didn't make it, but I think it was made a white flag on a stick. Um, and so all these different aspects of, of ideas were there to to try out and see what worked the best. Hmm. And in fact, in the in the original cassette uh, of War that was designed by Island Records because they'd simply asked me to do the the album cover they hadn't asked me to do anything else and in some of the singles um you can see peter holding this pole which is actually the flag on, mm. on the pole so one other thing i wanted to draw some attention to was the fact that you have come from october which which as we learned was not the easiest ride but at the same time you had the full support of the band and paul and management this time you were revisiting a sleeve which in some ways saw a controversial response so was to revisit that somewhat of an act of defiance or was it even considered like oh hang on we we ran into some problems here last time around was there any thought process on that any active thought process no i think i think the the general feeling was let's let's shoot and let's see what happens let's see what Mm -hmm. comes out of this this session and what, what will work um and I think, uh, I mean, one of the things that sort of happened was we began to shoot these and we tried the the um, idea of putting a Peter putting his hands behind his head, which in a, se- in a sense was a very much a mirror of the boy mm. uh, cover. So I guess on the boy sleeve, you had said before that you might have positioned Peter a bit differently, whereas on this sleeve, it felt like much more deliberate. Well, it is I mean, simply because this is what I saw in 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 the imagery in 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 the Warsaw Ghetto and and the kids as they were being rounded. You can actually see footage now, if you go online, of, of kids in the ghetto walking with their hands behind their heads and sometimes wearing wearing sort of little cloth caps and things like that. So, so the pose is is not a pose as such. It's more of a staging of a kind of dramatic moment, let's say, which is a boy held at gunpoint. Yeah. That 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 was definitely what what we were trying to do to mirror that thing. And in fact, on some of the even on the cassettes and some of the album covers, you can actually see more of his hands than you can. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the cassette is a, is a slimmer thing. So yeah, his hands were fairly obvious that that they were behind his head. Mm. Um, and doing and obviously because of the way it was, uh, uh, Ian shot it. A lot more detail w- was there. Although we we still looked at at keeping it almost that monochromatic and taking out some of the things, but. Again, and without this is pre-digital cameras. We um, we took some Polaroid pictures mm-hmm. um, of of it, and something I was not happy with the, the what was happening because uh, shots we were shooting against this white background, and I said this is too much of a of a uh, 
similarity to to the other cover and it's it doesn't really um work for me so i kind of left the studio and went for a walk and i wandered around the back of ian's house and i came across this um i think it was kind of a coal bunker or whatever Hmm. and on top of the coal bunker was a some corrugated metal Mm -hmm. that had uh, rusted um so i picked it up and and carried it into the studio and i said this suggests more to me about the decay rust of an, and danger or something that that's happening with it and i think that makes a much better backdrop so in fact in the actual uh, photographs it's actually me standing behind peter mm-hmm. holding this this piece of um corrugated metal and when i looked at the polaroid i said that it gives a much better contrast to the face it doesn't mirror the the boy album cover so much as it does the sort of uh, yes it strikes me as being a very effective evolution from the boy sleeve and also u2's music itself was becoming more textured yeah it just seemed to work and when we did the polarized we both said yeah this this definitely works so you can see some of the other shots that were taken at the session uh, where he's using the white flag against the white background and they in a sense fall more back towards the boy cover than, than anything else So you're starting to see these images. Maybe you're working up some proofs. Did did you go beyond these images then, uh, keeping in mind that, that the shoot was an experiment? It seems like you were happy pretty pretty early on. Yeah, well, I, I'm again looking at the contact sheets, and I still, I think I have, uh, the, I did have the contact sheets until very recently, probably still have them around somewhere. Um, you could see the, uh, the progress of what we were doing and the way we were going with it and, and how, how it was working. Um, and the intensity of Peter's expression is, is, is really crucial to the whole cover working. Mm. Because even though we had sort of talked about what the theme was, he somehow managed to convey fear in his eyes. Yeah. Um, uh, and that was kind of important to me that that it worked. And it's funny looking at some of the reproductions. You can see that some have a little bit more texture in them than others. Others are slightly more mm. dropped out, and you don't get, quite get that same sense of fear. But we 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 did that, and I we did. I tried a few different layouts using different di- different images to see which ones worked. Mm-hmm. I pretty soon discarded the idea of the gas mask and the and the helmet that they were just too. Um, not cliched, but certainly they they they, they pointed the wrong direction. We, I wanted this to be an uh, an expression from inside rather than outside. So we 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 pretty much moved to the images. Then, then the the crucial thing that really became how the typography would work with the image, and that's really what was something that I spent more time on. I think trying to work that right, getting that right for what for what I felt was 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 powerful. Well, I imagine possibly one of the reasons why the image or Peter's presence in the image works so well is because he was kind of nervous and there's a slight naivety to it and a natural innocence and a natural discomfort. I don't think you could have really cast this part and had, you know, a child actor come in and kind of portray it or perform it. But did you, you, you had worked with Peter previously no. Well, I hadn't really. That, that's the weird thing. I mean, I wasn't around for the boy session. Oh, so of course, yeah. I, I think I, I met Peter that morning mm. um, with, with Googie. And I think Googie sort of came and, and brought him and picked him up later on. And, and uh, we did a session just with Peter there. And I think it, it was the fact that he was slightly uh, nervous and unsure that he didn't know Ian or I very okay. well. Yeah. Um, it created a slight tension, which probably worked better than somebody we, we, we knew quite exactly. well or whatever. Yeah to do it you know absolutely so red the typography well the typography was i mean if you look at any uh, and it's unusual again in the sense it's as unusual as as boy was because um you know you don't normally have the title running from top to bottom on on the, on the left hand side of the the cover yeah. um and you know I, I looked at, at headlines and, and uh, print and a lot of uh, elements, as I said, like Life magazine, mm. uh, another magazine that did spreads about about the war, and and re- black and red was a very strong 
use of, of color in these magazines, like the Life magazine logo, I think is white on a, on a red background. And I tried a few of those things. I tried a sort of block of color with, with U2 War and things like that. And it seemed to interfere with the, the picture too much and, and be a distraction from, from the picture. Mm. Um, possibly I might have made the... Uh, nowadays made the type a bit smaller but i think it needed a bold statement so mm-hmm. i think that i looked at the type the type type of typefaces that were very prevalent during newspaper headlines and uh, uh, elements around the war and that's why i chose that very strong typeface to actually uh, express that yes it's got that masthead quality as you say evocative of life magazine or post magazine mm. This is primarily that utilitarian uh, war, fe- you know, headline featuring uh, element. So how about the idea of mock-ups back in the pre-computer age? And I guess the sleeve was simple enough. It's a photograph and some text. But how, how, how can you talk about the process of, of the mock-up? In those days, mock-ups were much simpler than what they were now. Um, it's funny because I look back at a couple of mock-ups we did for later album covers and um they were simplistic in the in the extreme in in how we portrayed where type would be and what type would be. There'd be samples of different magazines and things like that and shown to them. But they certainly would have be wouldn't have been the kind of in this day and age when you're presenting to a band, it's almost the virtually finished cover you you present to them. All the type is in place and or yeah. a mock type is in place to show exactly where everything goes. This would have been sketched out and would have been saying this this would work here, this might work here. And everything was done as a kind of a photocopy. Uh, presentation so the type was sort of done cut out of, of red paper and stuck down on, on the, mm. the whole thing and then a print made to show them how that would work yeah. um, but and some of the other versions of the cover that I've seen where the other fonts have been used it, it has none of the strength of, of that particular thing. And the other thing that was I was aware of, when I looked at pictures from that era, you, you saw things like aircraft and ships where the type ran down like that rather than across um, yeah. as, as, as branding or, or information text. Yeah, it's, it's utilitarian, as you mentioned before. To a large degree. And I think that utilitarianism is both feeding into the simplicity of the sleeve, but also then relating back to, you know, military... Um, military information or propaganda or whatever it may be yeah and then that's really what i was trying to trying to capture and i thought against the backdrop of the grays and the tones that the 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 red was by far the, the strongest color that would yeah. work in that context you can also see for the first time the cohesive design rollout as well with the singles being directly related to the album artwork in a way we hadn't really seen before. And I'm guessing there was just more control now over how the rollout occurred. Yeah, the control situation had become a little bit more prevalent, but not entirely because, as, as I say, I did the album cover, but Island Records did the cassette. And um, as you say, there's there's a multitude of war cassettes out there on the marketplace with very different uh, arrangements and layouts uh, that worked. So, you know, they were quite keen to sort of to do that. And, 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 and if anything, even though, though the album won a, a, a an award um, in the UK, um, the uh, cassette was and um was what the guy in Island Records took a co-credit on everything mm-hmm. because he he designed the cassette. Okay. Um, so whilst you were maybe having greater influence over the singles, if not directly designing them, you were still in a situation where you're designing a master artwork for a vinyl sleeve, which is then reappropriated for cassettes. No, I had no influence over the cassette, and I think that the CD when it came was a, a very much straightforward adaption of the album cover, which seems kind of crazy when you think about it well it is it's it's it, it, it was quite annoying to me to say that they hadn't asked me to do the cassette i thought they would come back to me and say yeah that's that's all past let's do the cassette versions and so on like that and they just went ahead and and, and did it themselves you know and i'm sure you would have preferred that because you would have been able to oversee how your artwork is represented in the various formats and perhaps even just as a challenge to to adapt to different sizing and standards but this changes, I guess, maybe from Unforgettable Fire, it starts and maybe obviously in Joshua Tree, you get more control over this. Yeah, that that was becoming more prevalent as we went along, that the band began to realise that these versions were appearing everywhere that was, you know, then quite often never saw them until they toured a territory and looked mm. and said, this is, you know, awful or it's completely different from what we were looking for. So that became an issue then and uh, that, that not only for the artwork for, for the... the releases but also things like press advertising they they mm. 
came along and said, we want you to tell, take charge of doing all of this stuff um, yeah. for the worldwide releases, uh, you know, complete a ad template that they would have to follow. They could drop their own information in, in an area, sure. but they couldn't change it around and do it, do it completely different from what the... I mean, I suppose as well, when you look at all the different versions of things, you really realize how many different territories were responsible for their own presentations and whether that was subsidiaries of the label or, or just local offices of the label just by the way it was always done that they would handle the, the, the package pressing it's interesting I suppose so many different territories would have would have grown and absolutely and and you know that went on for quite a, a good while afterwards we, we we tried to keep as much control of it but we we still saw occasionally a a local territory would go ahead and, and, and do their own version of a cover or whatever, whatever it might be. But, um, yeah, it was definitely a striving to sort of keep control of the whole thing so that there would be a uniformity uh, in what we in what was released on the, in the man's name. Before we, we flip over to the back, do you recall the first reaction from the label after coming out of October and the uh, less than hot response? Um. I, I have a feeling, again, that the reaction o- overall to the album cover was much more positive than... I think it was probably allied with the fact that uh, they were liking the music a lot more sure. as well. Some very powerful songs on, on, on that album. So the, the, the general package was, was kind of like, oh, this is, this is going to be good and strong. You know? Okay. Well, let's flip the album over to the back. And the first thing I think is worth noting is that it, once again, you have stretch the image out to to fold over onto the rear now once again we're not into gatefold territory here uh if i'm if i'm correct i don't have the album handy. no no it, it, it was a gatefold after the the whole oh. situation with october um it was agreed that it would, would it would be a gatefold because there's a whole other story about that yeah. um that we can talk about um but basically as i say the 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 band came to me and said well you know, we can use a photographer and who would you recommend that we use for it? And we had discussed that the band imagery inside should have a certain aesthetic that kind of looked like war on a war footage or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, I, for me, it had to be Anton uh, as a photographer. Um, and they agreed to that. They, and they had worked with Anton once before on a, on a, uh, an interview trip where they went, uh, I think, on a steamboat uh, in the States, and Anton was the photographer on that. So um, they decided, yeah, that Anton would be a good person, especially if they wanted to capture any of the more uh, darker or sort of harder elements of the way they might look in the cover. Can you re- recall your first experience of Anton? I think you might, might have mentioned it. Was, yeah, well, uh, uh, Anton was my my favorite photographer in the enemy. Mm. Um, there was people I liked, like Chalky Davis and, and other people around. Mm. But Anton had a certain aesthetic that was different. He tried to uh, his photographs bring something, another element to to just generally speaking, a, a very creative attitude towards it. So, I mean, Anton in his own right was not an unknown. Then he, I guess he he had shot the Joy Division. Uh, images and had I think at this point he'd already worked with you two in, in on that the sh- the boat shoot in America. Okay, so you suggest Anton, everyone's fully on board, and then I believe it's the New Year's Day video shoot where Anton makes his first sort of official appearance. Do you have any memories of that? Uh, Paul had said to me that look, the economics of this trip meant that they couldn't afford to bring me, Anton, and uh, several other people over to Sweden. That it, they were going to a particular area by helicopter. That meant there was probably, I think, they had six people or whatever they can only take in the helicopter, and Anton was one. And and uh, and it became. Uh, I really liked the shots. I think that the the shots, because they were bitterly cold when they did it, and they have a certain element of. Uh, discomfort in them. They look like they're they're, they're trudging through snow and and they're wearing uh, heavy coats and they're 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 kind of scarves on their faces and things like that. I think I read that um the the shot came um very late in the day after you know more or less as the, as the video had wrapped and they were kind of done and dusted and Anton arrives in the helicopter and they had a very limited amount of time. So I think that that's showing Anton's strength. You know, in this isn't a big long day going out and setting this up it's 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 such a captured moment as only he can you know life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome 
Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Yeah. Well, the, the, <laughs> the weird thing is, um, I Canton was away when prior to the shoot. So um, my brief to Anton was by fax. Mm-hmm. I sent him a big page listing and said, I want uh, some photographs to be this way and this way. And I wanted, particularly wanted to use long, thin, again, widescreen shots of the band in a, in, in a, a background. Yeah. So I kind you of did, thinking, the, did these You were thinking about the gatefold. For the, for the widescreen shots, I was thinking of the labels for mm. the for the for the for the for the album okay. um and uh on the inside but anyway I, I i didn't speak physically to anton prior to the shoot first time i ever met anton was when he came to dublin to uh look at the mock-ups of what i'd done mm-hmm. um for the cover um and uh no sorry that's that's not quite true i were, the band, as usual, were quite late with delivering the, the running order and changing things around and, and um, everything else that was there. And, uh, and initially there was talk of doing a an insert on the album. But again, there was a financial restraint that if we were going to have a gatefold sleeve, we weren't going to get an inner sleeve yeah. as such uh, in it. So that's why the those partial lyrics on the album rather than a full set of lyrics, because mm. space didn't permit everything to be there. But... Uh, when I produced the artwork and I had the artwork here and in fact all members of the band came out to the house um, I was due to fly to London next morning with the board artwork and everything with me mm-hmm. to, to deliver it to the record company and um, Bono didn't like Anton's shot hmm. um, which was interesting and we probably talked for about three hours around this yeah. um why they didn't like it and the whole thing and could we change it and is there any other shots that we could possibly use and i argued strongly that you know with a title like war it had to be evocative of that spirit to to make sense of the cover because he was talking about well let's have four individual ones on the inside or whatever it is and i said well what was the point of having a gatefold sleeve if you weren't going to have a gatefold picture so then we got anton on the phone and anton i you know Heard the conversation, and Anton said, "Look, I think Steve is right, and and uh, you know, and after about one in the morning or whatever it is, I can't remember. I know it was late in in, in the evening." Uh, Bono said, "Well, you seem totally convinced by this this thought, and you've argued your case quite well, so we'll we'll go with it." Mm. So they went with with that image, and I don't think he's ever been one hundred percent happy with the image. But for me, it was. Mm, the only do you know one. why that was? Do you think it was a like a, just a straight van- vanity thing? Uh, yeah, possibly that he wasn't quite happy with uh, how they looked in the picture because it's not exactly a glamorous picture of a rock and roll band, mm. um, uh, which I thought was all to the better for 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 what it was. You know, just looking at the picture, the images here, he looks uncomfortable. He looks awkward. Yeah, it looks very real. Yeah, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to convey that. So anyway, uh, it showed me again that that. This was a band who, if you could argue your point convincingly and they understood your point, they were prepared to listen to it. It wasn't like, we're the band, you're the doctor, we'll decide what happens here, whatever. So after this this, this quite prolonged conversation, they, they were prepared to, to back me and say, well, okay, if you feel this is the right image, we'll, we'll go with your, with your thought process on it. And then when Anton did say it, Anton agreed the same thing. Bono says of Anton something which I think is really relevant to his entire output and his whole career is that he takes pictures of the of the music 
not the band. Yes, definitely. I mean, and Anton, of course, uh, went on to to become the uh, photographer uh, in residence for you know people like Depeche Mode as as, as well as you too. You know, he developed developed these relationships with bands that carried on for quite a number of years, um, and saw him progress. Well, we're here celebrating your long term relationship with you too, and of course, we have to speak of Anton's longevity with numerous bands, whether it be U2 or Depeche Mode. What I find really remarkable is that he seems to have worked with everybody you could possibly imagine, but it seems like he's really wanted to work with everyone that he's worked with. Like there's there's just such a enthusiasm and conviction in, in so much of his work. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, you probably need to talk to, to Anton about that. But yes, he certainly doesn't want to work with... I mean, he basically... Um, has to feel something about the band that he's work he's working yeah. with, uh, or or he it's a straightforward commission. In which case, I mean, like he, he he I talked to him quite a bit about when he started to shoot. He said that the interesting thing was that you're not really a celebrity or high end photographer in America until you start shooting f- uh, film stars, rock stars. Yeah. Is kind of kind of oh yeah, it's not a rock star. So when when he began to shoot the Clint Eastwoods and the various other people. Uh, that he began to be taken in a in a, in a much more serious sure. light as a photographer over over there. But he said that was interesting because in a lot of cases of people he photographed in those situations, he'd be told you've got six minutes or four minutes yeah. or whatever, and uh, an actor an actor will give you a hundred percent for that mm. very short period of time, and then we'll, we'll mm. be gone. So you had to get your head together and know yeah. exactly how you're going to do it before that person walks into that room for you. You know? Yeah, I think as our our good friend Mark described him he's the he's a dutch master yes indeed so when it comes to the widescreen image and you too most people probably straight away think of joshua tree and unforgettable fire but you are beginning to experiment with heavy widescreen cinematic images on the actual labels on the records the vinyl records themselves on on on, on war and if you look at the labels now it's actually quite ambitious what you've tried to do you've really tried to maximize yeah the, the, the kind of visual potential of all the elements here. Normally the label is reserved for text, but you have images, an image, an image per band member, which in itself harkens back to the rear cover of Boy, where you had each member in their own square image. So they're now widescreen. Their horizons perhaps expanding, if you want to put some weight onto that yeah well i i, I wanted <laughs> i would love to have there been a single label each but um yeah i, I didn't know how i was going to use them but i i had this vision of i had sort of sketched out the the, the, the label and i said i think this would be great used in this way and and um i think anton because he didn't know me and he was only working with the band uh more or less shot those images um knowing that i was going to crop them down i think anton would probably once anton got to know the band hmm. and uh, got to know me there was a lot more interaction between him and i about wh- where we were going with things in a, in a sense anton is is not a photographer you are direct in the same way you might some other photographers anton is somebody you discuss what we're trying to achieve and his vision is so strong i didn't want to be there interfering with his vision well he definitely strikes me as having like a particular kind of confidence in his visions and you know not in an arrogant way but just the a conviction in what he's doing and i've you know i've had the the pleasure of kind of witnessing that once or twice and he really does think and act in such a pure artistic way absolutely he 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 would very much have a strong aesthetic of what he tried to achieve so that's why i think it was interesting that you know i was telling him by facts what i wanted and he actually did exactly what i what i want i wanted at the time and then we when we met in dublin when he came over to see what we were doing and looking went to choose prints for for the press shoot and things like that uh we found a common ground that we we, we could work on um it, it, it's it's you know my role with anton was discussion and and trying to achieve a certain aesthetic and trying to go in a certain place and then anton's role you know i would be very conscious of what he was shooting and anton was gracious enough to sort of keep me very much involved in in in, in what he was shooting to look through the camera and see where we were going with the whole thing and look at the polaroids and, and, and that. yeah and i think that the best kind of collaboration is a sort of a top-down collaboration and the best form of art direction comes from an inherent trust which you obviously had a a trust and respect for anton and an understanding of how you're 
layouts, your art direction, your typography is going to plug into the images that he's capturing. And once again, we can talk about the sum of its parts, the synergy of it all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was it was pretty much in the early days. Um, certainly, uh, the four members of the band and myself, and and generally speaking, Anton or whoever, whatever photographer was was there. Well, there's a collective spirit in that, and we're here talking about the, you know, one of the longest running creative collaborations in rock and roll history. Something we should find an acronym for the the <laughs> yes. L or C L or C triple or H, um. But um, yeah. Like there's an again going back to trust and and a kind of democratic style of creativity and a and an all for one one for all spirit. But I think that that collective spirit is so crucial to all of this, and obviously is anchored by Paul McGuinness, of course. Yeah, I think they liked people with an opinion. Yeah, as well because you know you you were as you say uh, a record company art department may sort of have a particular aesthetic and, and get things done because they needed to do it economically and and everything else. Whereas you're outside of that that scenario, you're just trying to do uh, from my point of view the the best vision to suit that record uh, as you, as you could. You you know that the music is so powerful. You just want that imagery to be equally powerful. And for me, a cover. And if it informs somebody about the content in some way, even if it's a very uh, abstract way, that's that's an, an important thing. I have this separate thought, given that we're at the third album, which kind of closes out the first triptych of albums, the trio of sleeves. And having come from the previous album and the previous episode, where we talked about October and how it by itself was maybe considered a weaker um, weaker part of the graphic canon when when October is surrounded on either side by boy and then war you, you do have a kind of an alchemical effect where where it's cradled by boy and war and therefore is imbued with a thread that's present in all three of the albums and kind of ele- ele- elevates it there, there, there are as we discussed I think ourselves there are elements in October that you can see running through all three of those covers. I suppose what we could say is that you're not denying the that there's an influence coming from the previous sleeve onto the current or in the present sleeve, yeah. or indeed the future sleeves. That there's a, there is really a consideration for the the arc of the graphic, um, the graphic intent, and um, I suppose that does continue as well through um, maybe up to a point. Yeah, it, and then if you if you if you also include then you skip one and you go you go to you go to Unforgettable Fire, whereby again another picture with the band in a location, hmm. uh, not as 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 close up as it is in October. But there's a kind. This goes on throughout the entire album design process, where it's almost abstract non-band picture, then band picture, then non-band picture, then band picture. Well, when we when we get to the the next episode and beyond, I think we could talk about the very strong visual relationship between. Unforgettable Fire and Joshua Tree and how perhaps that could have been a you know evolved into a three album strong super strong triptych that was kind of interrupted by Octone Baby yeah so getting back to War and flipping the sleeve over we're looking at the the vinyl version here the typography I think is really nice it's the first time I think you've really fully fleshed out the kind of uh, power of, of text on a sleeve and yet you still maintain the minimalist sense. You've left a lot of negative space. It's really nicely done. And the U2 war title and text itself is like a, almost like a mirrored reflection of the front cover where it's in red. And, and that's probably, again, one of the reasons why I was pretty unhappy with what the record label did with the cassette versions. Mm. In fact, I mean, in some ways, as an, on when we're talking about the cassettes, there's a Japanese version of the cassette that sticks a lot closer to... to the album cover, yeah, in many ways, and is 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 aesthetically more pleasing than some of the sort of ones that they totally ruined. The, the There's really no reason why it couldn't have been adapted. Very relatively straightforward. I don't think you might benefit it from. You know, you can have an extra couple of pages on the on the folder, but there's no reason why that couldn't have just been implanted into. Yeah, cassette. I mean, it, it's quite funny when when people now talk about the CD, and of course, the CD was was really uh, something that was coming 
in it to its own. It, it hadn't really been established as a, as a format in many ways. It was basically the vinyl and the cassette were the two primary things. But the cassettes in, in those days were were very minimal. You 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 got very little in your cassette. You could probably got a single fold that you folded up into the cassette. Whereas later, with later, even if you look at say the Acton Baby cassette, it folds out about nine or ten times mm. it, it, it becomes something interesting in itself as you reveal the, ver- the various yeah. formats but those the, 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 those versions and certainly because the, the first cassette ver- or first i can remember the first cd version of october and and, and uh war were simply a single fold with no information and they, in fact it basically gave you information how to clean your cd player or something like that rather than any information about about the record later on we we we, we issued we you know there was a lot of talk about uh, other albums that we would reissue that we should go back and give the fans something decent and I think that's where the reissue program began where we began to like look at it as a piece of work in itself and add much more to it more lyrics more more pictures to make the package much more in, uh, interesting than what they were initially um from from taking a step back then uh was was there a sense of things were changing in in for the band and the reception and the buzz and the, the growth like was there any can you remember a point maybe it didn't happen for a little while longer but where you really had to go okay we're 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 on a ride here i well i think i think there's a general feeling that this was on the up that things were beginning to move in the in the positive direction as i say um i i i as far as i can remember i got a um a music week award for for war yeah which was hugely interesting to me because it was uh if if i'm right and i can double check this i think it was in the best selling or, or mainstream album category and it wasn't uh, any parochial thing it was up against um every other release that year in the uk and in america so to actually win the best album cover um yeah. category was, was something that they were very proud of and sure. you know i do remember go, going over to the grosvenor hotel for this award thing and thinking that i didn't have to do anything and then being told mm. two minutes before it happened that i'd have to go up and say something at the microphone yeah. which i think was completely through me and i i think i said something i don't know what i said something yeah. was not funny or or, <laughs> or <laughs> and, and i instantly regretted um saying anything at all rather than just sure. saying thank you and and it was jules holland jules holland who was presenting the award yeah wow <laughs> um yeah it's funny it just, it does seem like the the force that came from the tour following war was quite profound which as a sort of a a bonus Maybe we could talk a little bit about the live album under Blood Red Sky, uh, live live at Red Rocks, and what the sort of conversation was there, um, and how they related to war, and your process behind that. Well, it, it was almost a separate thing. Uh, Island Records had this um, mini album, yeah, you know, which, which which appears on the cover. This sort of Island mini album thing, which was a, a format they they kind of had come up with, which is like essentially an EP um, that had a, a, a six or six tracks or eight tracks or whatever, and they were doing it quite a few of their artists. Mm-hmm. And um, the whole process around, uh, I think it's probably written about uh, in U2 mythology, that it almost broke the band that they, they had uh, set about filming this this show. And it, the day of the show turned out to be uh, a massive storm. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I remember it being said that Paul felt this was, you know, they were going to lose everything here they're going to lose yeah. all the money that they put into this and the band would essentially be broke yeah. and as it turned out it 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 uh the day the day cleared up and the concert went ahead and was well done and uh it, it was well received it's a great show it's it's iconic yeah it is and i i i received a number of uh uh in fact i didn't receive any image what i was given at the end of the day to work with was was some of the like the footage um and i had to find a way of and then again, this is the simplest thing in the world to do now. But back in those days, trying to convert uh, video imagery to um, still photography was a major problem. So I was uh, spoke to Wimble Lane Productions, and we went into a studio in Wimble Lane, and they recommended a photographer they they knew, um, and the photographer was there with me, and we were simply set up a camera on a tripod in front of a, the largest screen we could find. Uh, and framed it, and simply just took still after still after still, based on on what what I was seeing and freezing a frame and or, mm. or shooting it live and doing it that way. But of course, 
it's not a blood red sky. It's a, it's a blue yeah. sky in, in the imagery. And um, we had to uh, find a process of degrading the imagery by pushing the reds all the time so that the actual image of Bono on the front cover with the flag, it becomes almost ghost-like. Mm. It's become because of the pushing of the whole thing to get it close to... Uh, well, it also feels like Apocalypse Now, you know, there's a very strong sense of, of, of war time in there. And he's obviously holding the flag there as well, the aforementioned flag. It's quite a strong companion to the, to the album, graphically. Yeah, and then the ch- ch- choosing the, the, the four live shots of the guys uh, on the stage. And I think one of the things I did like, uh, and it became a postcard at some point for the band, was uh, a picture of a helicopter. I think it's maybe used on the actual label. Mm-hmm. Itself, you know. I was always fascinated by this cover when I was a kid. I remember seeing it around the house, and when I eventually watched the, uh, the concert, I was slightly disappointed because I felt like, oh, it's you know, it's not this burning, searing, mi- misty procession of music. It was a bit more kind of clean it's still still amazing but it was a bit more sort of clean or something but the uh the sky of the actual the actual uh sky stage with the lights and everything is is really good and as you say edge is is just disappearing off the frame and you know it's kind of a that is am i right there i thinking that's the trying to capture the spirit of it i suppose yeah am i right there i thinking that's the little yes frame the edge of the, the, screen? the, yeah. the, 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 the mother um yeah it's, it's the curve the curve of the monitor at the angle we, we, we were shooting it i can't wait can't quite remember why we actually chose a shot where he's, he's disappearing off the screen but um he seemed he seemed to like it <laughs> well in, in in the context of the time you can see that that's a you know there's an energy to the shot he might not have cho- chosen it if you'd had complete authority over you know which frame you're going to pick but yeah it's a bit strange but i think they're all a bit strange and they all kind of work together yeah to a degree but again that the aesthetic there is 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 undoubtedly uh Covered by the fact this was this was a stopgap um, mini album release. It wasn't given the same kind of uh, aesthetic as a, as a full album release might have been. But at the same time, it was crucial to the band because it became it became the first time I think they sold in large quantities in America. The, the live album at that period of time was a big part of the of the of the record company yeah. aesthetic you know that i think peter frampton and people like that live album was a multi-million selling album so it was the one that it took off in america as a as a reflection of the band as a live as a live act right and i guess uh we, you know i was going to keep the focus of of this podcast to the you know the albums and some of the sort of peripheral materials but i, I guess that war was probably the first time that you maybe launched a bigger, bigger, wider campaign in terms of tour programming, t-shirts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you have any any overarching kind of comments? Again, I, uh, I'm trying to think now. I think the tour program for War, I'll have to go back and check, um, was again by a different company at the time who were doing, who were an island. I think Niall Story, who's one of the was one of the guys that worked in Island Records in the press department, wrote the the the. the the tour program around that time uh it was but i was beginning to come on the scene and i think i did uh, a number of ideas for for war t-shirts at, at the time as well but i don't think i don't i think it was unforgettable fire was probably the first time that we had a dedicated uh tour program design okay so you're still sort of sharing splitting some of the duties yeah some of the contests with, with other people uh, so to, sorry to derail that i was just skim, again skimming through um discogs here and looking at a reissue of under blood red sky from 2008 which was in fact gatefold and features a very very striking image of the stage from the rear of the venue looking down over the the natural amphitheater and it also looks like there was an inner bag yeah, as well which yeah. had two two shots where you can see the helicopter and yeah yeah, there's quite quite a bit more with the whole thing, because because at that stage we had, you know, there had been photographers at the venue mm. um, that we hadn't known about at the time when when the album came out. But there was we were able to access uh, other photography rather than off screen photography, which made it a much more uh, interesting yeah, project. It's quite interesting, and I think there was a there was a gatefold booklet as well with a shot of Bono wearing a U two War Tour t shirt. Yes, and also the image of edge on the rear has had the edges of the screens removed so there you go on war 
you are accredited as Orex, which is a shorthand for Rapid Exteriors, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on, and then on, it is. Uh, on under Blood Red Sky, you're you are Orex for the creative department. So at this point, you were so for yeah. War, you were still operating as yourself as a as a, as a singular entity, mask masquerading. As an independent, I was working in an advertising agency. Yeah. Yeah, and then I joined the creative department where, where I was given the role, and I brought I brought the music stuff in house as a part of the of the general what we were doing overall. Yeah. Um, but you are so, still yet to form yeah, that's why, form your own your own endeavor, your own enterprise. No, I was I it, I left the creative department uh, and then went to became creative director of an advertising agency, and in in doing going to the uh, to, to get the creative director job, I had said that I wanted to form a design consultancy at the same time as part of the deal to go over there. And that's, they let me do that. So that's when I formed the first design consultancy. And then after about a year, year and a half of, of doing both jobs, which was almost almost killing everybody in the in the firm by trying to do full-time work as an advertising consultant and then trying to do a design consultancy as well, um, we decided to sort of move away completely from the advertising side of it and just go into the design 100%. So I guess that wraps up all things war. And I know I've asked you, you know, was there a point where things were changing? But it must have been clear that there was momentum building and with the, you know, encroaching into the US a bit more with Blood Red Sky, etc., etc. Things must have been moving. By that point, there was there was a sense that something was, was, was beginning to click for the band but with an audience and with uh, the labels. That they, everybody began to see the potential and the wide-ranging potential of the band. They were moving from like Ireland's biggest band uh, and achieving sort of number one spot in Hot Press to the UK and then on to America. Um, and it, it, the door was wide open, but they really had to put in a lot of hard work and produce really good material to, to back that up. So, well, I think it's also knowing that this all happened in a th- it's three years, really, the period over the three albums, more or less an album per year, which uh, I think now isn't quite as common. I think people take, seem to take longer. Um, it seemed to go from every year to then every two years to every three years. I mean, uh, I remember going to a lecture from Dave Stewart of the Rhythmics and, and solo material, and he was talking about the fact that he would produce enough material in a year for five or six albums, but the record company only ever wanted to release one every two years. So he was trying to find a way to get that extra material um, out there in the world. Um, and the time he was looking at having a website or some kind of uh, space that people could go and they could, you know, sign up and, and pay a fee and get to listen to a lot of material that wasn't otherwise available. Something that's probably more relevant now to people who aren't releasing physical product but, but putting stuff out on downloads. I, I, I think it is not a perfect cover, but, you know, a pretty damn fine cover. I would say that Boy War. Uh, Joshua and Actung were the, the, the four sleeves that I felt that we got closest to what we were trying to achieve. And that has been episode four of U2Y, the U2 Design History Podcast. Sending our thanks and gratitude to Nadine, to Bono Edge, Larry and Adam. And we at U2Y would like to thank Universal Music Group. Next episode is The Unforgettable Fire, a record sleeve, not without some controversy. Tune in to find out more. If you want to find out more about Steve, stevenaveril.com forward slash u2y or instagram.com forward slash stevenaverildesign where he posts bits and pieces from his archive and beyond. We are always trying to strike a balance here between the technical and the anecdotal. So for the images that we're talking about or some of the specific references, we're going to try and get as much of that material up on Steve's website or his Instagram. So hopefully you're not lost. And there's a great resource on YouTube.com where you can look at all of the, the releases and their sleeves. Thanks again for listening. That's chapter four, U2Y. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water 
it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.